from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. This is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Bob Detrick is a 1984 graduate of The Ohio State University with a degree in finance, and he is a financial planning professional in Central Ohio. He is the co-author of the new book, Bulls, Bears, and the Ballot Box, How the Performance of Our Presidents Has Impacted Your Wallet, with Lou Goldfarb, also an OSU graduate with a BA in business and a JD from the law school. Mr. Goldfarb is also an assistant professor of clinical law and director of entrepreneurship and community development at the University of Cincinnati Law School. Welcome both to Writer's Talk. Thank you very much. Thanks, Doug, for having us. Appreciate it. Let's talk about the book. You describe Bulls, Bears, and the Ballot Box how the performance of our presidents has impacted your wallet as, quote, a review of 80 years of our nation's economic history from the Great Depression and Herbert Hoover to the Great Recession and George W. Bush, a time period in which Democratic and Republican parties occupied the Oval Office for precisely 40 years each. What was your reason for writing the book? How did it get started? Uh, actually, uh, I'll lead off if I may. I, I the, the idea for the book came up about four years ago when I, I had a, a seminar for our clients in 2008. This was right before Bear Stearns had collapsed, which was a, the beginning of the debacle in 2008. And I, I did some research on, uh, just f- because it was an election year, I wanted to see how the presidents had performed for my clients. And we started with Herbert Hoover, and we took it all the way through, th- at that time, almost four years or three and a half years with George W., and what I found was pretty astounding that the numbers didn't favor the Republicans at all. They were totally, they totally favored the Democrats, and that contradicted everything I'd learned uh, growing up, if you will, in a very conservative profession. So at the end of the day, when we started looking at some other data points, we realized that gee, this, this, this is going to follow suit. This is not what we expected we'd find, and that was kind of the beginning of, of the book was two thousand eight. And uh, how did you then meet Mr. Goldfarb to start that whole process of the book? Uh, good question, Lou is. Uh, Client, a friend, client of our wealth management practice at Stephen Morgan and I own called Polaris Financial Partners up in Westerville. Uh, Lou has been a client for about six or seven, seven or eight, seven years, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I told Lou about the book, about the notion of the book, and asked him if he'd like to consider the, the idea of joining me. And about a year and a half ago, and he agreed, and I'm very happy to have him. He's been the, the quantitative guy. I've been the qualitative guy. It's really worked well. Yeah, uh, and Bob's been managing my money for about uh, six years. It's, it's been about, yeah, about six, seven years. And it seemed like Correct. whenever we got together, you know, to talk about how my investments were doing, the talk turned to politics. Okay. And we found that both of us were kind of political junkies. And that was entirely my fault. I, right. I, I generally so, turn the conversation to politics if it's, if it's appropriate. So, so I have no idea how my investments are doing, but we know how the presidents are doing. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, now, no. in, in, <laughs> hopefully that's not entirely true. Um, you rank your pre- the presidents by a score you refer to as the Presidential Ranking of Economic Stewardship, or PRES, which relies on what you call the three economic pillars, U.S. financial health, personal wealth, and business prosperity. Tell me about these pillars and how they impact the rankings. Yeah, we, we wanted to do a, uh, a fair and meaningful and objective evaluation of the presidential performance over the years. And so we looked at, we decided, to, we looked at 12 different economic indicators that uh, come from very reputable sources and that go all the, all the way back to 1929, the beginning of our study of 80 years. And we wanted to look at the performance of the presidents from different perspectives. From the business owner's perspective, we have our, our business prosperity pillar from the average 
average worker and family's perspective, we have the personal wealth pillar. And then we have a pillar that's kind of from the 10,000 foot level, the, the macroeconomic indicators, which is our U.S. financial health pillar. So we look at these 12 economic indicators to objectively score and measure the performance of each of the presidents under each of these indicators each of these economic indicators and add the scores together for how they performed and come up with rankings of the presidents. Okay. Now, you just <coughs> used the word uh, phrase, objectively score. And that's one of the things that interested me in the book because it's so difficult to, especially in today's political climate, to do something like this, I would imagine, to say this is an objective score and define it in ways that you can get any sort of agreement across political lines. Have you had experience so far with that, with uh, saying to people, this is an objective indicator because of the following and getting agreement? I think the the, the one common argument we'll we'll probably hear will be that there should be some sort of lag time that that, that the president, you know, once he's in office, there might be a lag time of two or three or four years before his policies take effect. And we think that's a bunch of nonsense, quite frankly. The notion We believe in this notion that the president is the CEO of the country when he's in office. For example, just like Jim Trestle was head coach of the Ohio State Buckeyes from 2001 to 2010. When Trestle came in in 2001, he came into a situation that was kind of... Um, ambiguous. I mean, he, he, he had uh, the team had a poor academic rec- record. They had a lot of discipline problems. He came in and he had his first three years, he was 7-5, 14-0, and 11-2. Okay. And his second year, he won the national championship. Now, can you imagine, let's say that was reversed. Let's say he came in and he was 5-7 and seven and 7-7 seven and seven in the second year and 4-8 and eight in his third year. And, he, and at the end of his third year, he said, well, you know, it's John Cooper's fault. Now, I'm going to blame John Cooper because he gave me kind of a mess to deal with, so I'm going to blame it on him. We believe that that is just ridiculous. There's no CEO in the country. There's no head coach of a football team or manager of a baseball team who could come in and say, you know, blame it on my predecessor for the first three years. You can't blame it on me. And we believe that that's the same thing is true here, that the president has to stand on his economic record or someday her economic record. I hope if we get a, a female president someday, that is what is what has to stand. And that's that's how we, we, we uh, made okay. our rankings. Okay. So uh, the indicators that you're using then are things that you've had some success in getting other people to buy into because once you make that argument to say it's it's the president's fault one way or the other then the economic indicators fall in line uh, that you you get agreement on well we think that each president has inherited a very unique set of circumstances some are, have been better than others with all economically speaking and we're looking at the economic perspective not the, the, the global perspective the right. economic perspective in George W Bush's case he inherited a pretty good situation from Bill Clinton on the other hand Ronald Reagan inherited a pretty bad set of circumstances from Jimmy Carter but each president has had to deal with that that mess or that situation uh, and and deal with it effectively and they either you know through our our pres rules either dealt with the situation effectively or not okay. and, uh, and, and several of our indicators do look at, did that president, what did they do with what they inherited? Several of them look at, you know, did unemployment increase or decrease while they were president? Did corporate profits grow or did they decrease while they were president? So we have several indicators that look at, did they make better or worse what they inherited? Okay. I'm talking with Bob Detrick and Lude Goldfarb authors of the new book, Bulls, Bears, and the Ballot Box. Now, in the book, you frequently champion the work of Mariner Eccles, the first Federal Reserve chairman, a Republican, and an FDR appointee. What made him stand out to you? 
Actually, uh, if I may, I'll start on this one. Uh, Mariner Eccles was uh, someone I learned about just about seven years ago. I'd never even heard of the man before that. And when I learned about him, I was fascinated by what the little bit I knew, and I started reading about him, and I, I this guy represented everything that this country stands for. He defines the word statesmanship. And in my view, that's something that this country has gotten away from and something that we desperately need to get back to, if you will. I believe that, I believe in conservatism from the standpoint that we need to go back to the future and get back to guys like Mariner Eccles and FDR who worked for the betterment of the country. Guys like Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill who worked for the betterment of the country. We're not there now. I mean, we're not anywhere close to that. And I think we desperately need to get back to people like Eccles and FDR. And was that the same case for you? Yeah, you know, I, I, mean, I agree with what Bob said. He's, he's, uh, Mariner Eccles was kind of an unsung American hero. Um, back in the Great Depression, uh, he was the one who authored many of the New Deal programs that FDR adopted and helped us get out of the Great Depression. Very few people know that. But he was, he was the person who kind of went against the grain, went against what everyone else wanted to do at that time, which was balance the budget. Mariner Eccles was the guy who came in and convinced FDR, we need to implement some government programs to help stimulate this economy. And fortunately, FDR listened to him. Why do you think Mariner Eccles is not better known uh, when he's the author of the New Deal uh, programs that you're describing here? Uh, he, he wasn't one who cared for the limelight or cared for politics, although he really was the consummate politician. If you read his book or his books, which I've read uh, and stories about him, he was the consummate politician. But he really didn't care for the limelight and uh, and didn't care for who got the, the credit. He knew FDR would get the credit, and as he rightfully should have. But the reality is, uh, as, as Lou alluded to, Mariner Eccles was the architect of a lot of the New Deal programs. He came up with the idea of the Banking Act, uh, the FHA. The FDIC was his idea. Um, uh, he came up with the notion of um, a lot of the the, the, the the alphabet soup programs like the WPA and the CCC and so forth that came out then. So he, he and he was a unique guy. This this was again. Keep in mind he was worth about fifty to seventy million dollars when he came to Washington in nineteen thirty three. So he was a, a multi billionaire in today's dollars. He would have been the Warren Buffett of his day, but he came to Washington to bring some security back to our economy, and that's exactly what he did. Okay, how did you collaborate? on bulls, bears, and the ballot box. You're in two different fields doing different things. What was the process like of working on this book? I think we uh, played to our strengths, so to speak. Um, I think I'm more of a detailed, quantitative, numbers-crunching kind of guy. Bob's more of a big-picture kind of qualitative guy. So we kind of try to divide up the work in accordance with our strengths. And uh, I'd say that I focus maybe more on the putting together the pres rankings and the the graphs that you'll see. We have we have almost seventy graphs in our books in our book and most of those graphs I put together. Bob focused more on kind of the qualitative side of things and and, and drafting a lot of the the chapters which provide a lot of the insights on the presidents, whereas I focus more on kind of the uh, I'd say the numerical side. Okay. And coming from a financial planning background, tell me about your writing the history parts of this. Um, you said you had uh, research assistance to, to help with that aspect of it? We did. We uh, assembled a, a terrific research team that were you know, a combination of my staff, some of Lou's students from UC, from his program there. Uh, we had um, a couple other folks here in central Ohio we tapped into, including Dr. Jonathan Fox here at Ohio State, who's been a colleague of mine I worked with back in the 90s and, and the earlier part of the 2000 decade. But at the end of the and Jonathan actually is going to Iowa State. I should state that as well. But uh, he's moving moving to the um, like 
Des Moines or somewhere uh, this summer. But uh, he, he was also of great help. But, uh, you know, it, it was challenging. I mean, you've got two different types of people who are trying to work on the book. Uh, but to me, it was like a partnership, and a partnership is kind of like being married with none of the fun stuff. So that's just that's part it's of the, that's one, easy, of the one of the realities of life. But we we worked there's through a lot, it of, lot of twists and turns and ups and downs. But we 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 got through it. Exactly. Tell me about some of the more difficult moments that you had contention over. I'm curious about what it was that arose that was without getting back into the argument. What was it that you said? Okay, this is going to be a moment we're really going to have to sit down and, and work out. Say the view of the book, or are you trying to start a fight, Doug? I am possibly <laughs> trying to start a fight here. You're much too comfortable together. But what were those difficult moments, and how did you get past them? I would say that um, again, as, as Lou alluded to, he's, he pays tremendous attention to detail. I focus more on the, the marketing aspect of things in the big picture, and so sometimes the the animosity was just over uh, who would manage what. By the end of the day, you know. We worked through the problems successfully, and uh, that was what was important as far as I was concerned. Okay. But the real reason I chose Lou as my co-author was that if you look at the book, his the, the number of characters in his name is exactly the number that are in my name, three and eight. Oh, okay. So it just really matched across the top of the book. Yeah, but you've got their, their, uh, <laughs> their next to each other, not on top of each other, which would have been the better. The next <laughs> book was, would have been. That was part of the deal. Bob wanted top billing. <laughs> ah, I see. It's because it's his idea. It's always yeah, the person exactly that comes right. up with the idea. All right. Um, you refrained from judging Obama's presidency because it was too fresh as you were writing the book. Um, have you been keeping tabs on the pillars in his administration? I suspect that you have, and uh, even a preliminary feeling. Yeah, if I, let me t- I, yeah, we just published an article, in fact, that I had written that it compares Obama's first three and a half years roughly to Ronald Reagan's first three and a half, Ronald Reagan being the conservative icon uh, for the Republican Party. And what's interesting is uh, on you know, nine or 10 of the 12 data points, Obama does better than Reagan, including the stock market. If you take a look at the stock market returns in the first three and a half years of Reagan's administration, we averaged between six and 7%. We actually had a very serious recession of almost 18 months in Reagan's first term. Unemployment was nine and a half percent in the August of 1983, which would have been August of last year for Obama. And yet we got it down to seven, four by August, by November of 1984, and Reagan won by a landslide. Uh, but I think that my, the point is, Reagan inherited the mess, and so did Obama. I think we need to give Obama a break. He is—he inherited a mess that was worse than anything we've seen since 1933. Okay. Now, um, I don't usually ask political questions, but the nature of uh, bulls, bears in the ballot box, and the cover recommendation by a former Democratic National Committee chairman suggests a question. Did the writing of this book alter or confirm your political affiliations? And I'm not asking what they are, but I'm curious about what it did to you as you wrote the book. I don't know if it altered or confirmed my uh, affiliations. I think it it answered some questions I had in my mind. I mean, I've always heard a lot of, a lot of rhetoric, uh, actually coming from both sides, uh, making claims about which party is better for the economy. Um, and it, it kind of satisfied some curiosity I had. Um, you know, I, I wanted to have some numbers to back up what had been claimed for years by the parties as to who is better for the economy and better for my finances and your finances. And I think our book did that. Okay. And I'm talking with Bob Detrick and Lou Goldfarb, authors of the new book, Bulls, Bears, and the Ballot Box, How the Performance of Our Presidents Has Impacted Your Wallet. Now, you've got mutual backgrounds as financial planners and of course, OSU 
graduates, and that lends you credibility. Um, we like to say for uh, <laughs> for your book. Uh, how did uh, how do you anticipate your conclusions being received by what some people might assume to be a, a field financial planning that has a lot of conservatives in it? Uh, we're, we're unsure of that. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, uh, again, I've gr- grown up in a very conservative profession. I had the, the dogma I've learned for two decades was that when Republicans are in office, the market does better, the economy performs better, and so on. And what we discovered in our book is that that is totally untrue. We, we basically have uncovered or repudiate the myth that of Republican economic dominance, which I think will be a big surprise in the book. At the end of the day, though, you'd never know that. And we, we, we come down on the Democrats, too, because at the end of the day, it's their responsibility to stand on and convey their own message. And unfortunately, they've not done a good job of that. Hopefully, this book will help both parties in that yeah. regard. Yeah, I'm, I'm certain there are people who will not like our conclusions, despite mm-hmm. our numbers, and will find ways to criticize how we did it. Right. And we're prepared to defend the, defend ourselves. Okay. Now, um, Lou Goldfarb, you're in academic circles. I which am. It's may- a kind of a late in life or I don't know if it's midlife or late in life. I'm not sure which it is. Career change <laughs> for me. I, I had practiced law for a number of years and made a change in academia about four years ago. Okay. So how do you anticipate it being uh, received in academic circles? Do you think that it's going to go against received wisdom there as well? Um, I don't know. I haven't given it that much thought. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think we have a lot of support for what we're saying in our book. We have numerical support and statistical analysis. So I think, uh, I think it'll be well received. Um, as you know, in the academic world, there are a lot of different ideas and there's always plenty of debate among academic types. And I'm sure that, uh, again, from the academic side, there'll be some disagreement about what statistics we picked and how we did the calculations. But I think we have a solid uh, defense for how we how we calculated the press rankings. Now, you're not suggesting that academic economic uh, people would would have disagreement because surely that's objective. <laughs> there's there's no there's no question with it if it's numbers, right? What is the old? There's um, numbers don't lie. Numbers don't lie. Stati- um, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Isn't mm-hmm. that the mm-hmm. uh, the old saying? Uh, I'm and so my my uh, one other question that I was curious about, Mr. Detrick, is as a business person within the financial field, um, was it a concern for you to write? the book because of how it might impact, say, your own business, how something like this, how personal did it get for you as you were writing it and you thought, you know, I'm, I may alienate people because of it? Uh, that that was a, a concern to an extent. But again, a lot of the clients that whom we work with, who Stephen and I work with, and we've worked with for 10, 15, 20, 25, and, you know, year, and even 28, 29 years. So, you know, we think, in fact, what's interesting is one of my best clients and best friends I've known 28 years is a Republican and a very staunch Republican. And we go at it fist to cuffs sometimes when we talk political politics and he, we you know the expletives fly sometimes but uh, with all due respect but uh, <laughs> but but my point is he he referred us to david wilhelm he's good friends with david wilhelm he's on the same bank board down in logan ohio he referred us to david because he thought that david could help us sell the book he wanted us to get the book out so uh, again i want people to understand that this is not just about partisanship that mm-hmm. you know some of my best friends and clients are republicans and i love them dearly despite the fact that this book may disagree with them to some extent. But it did have an impact on with a couple people. I won't deny that. But for most people, it, it became a non-issue. Okay. 
What are your future plans for book writing? You've got this one down. What's Do you have other things brewing in the pot now that you've worked together and you've uh, found the beauty of collaborative writing? I think it's a little too early to tell, maybe. <laughs> um, we've talked a little bit about, you know, we'd like to write a book that includes the Obama economic saga, possibly at some point. But we're early on. And, you know, our book comes out this weekend. We have uh, several book signings planned, including one July 7th here at uh, Barnes & Noble up in Polaris. Can I plug that on the air? Sure. Okay, July 7th at 1 o'clock at Polaris, we'll be doing a book signing. Yeah, we've got, actually we've got 28 book signings up so so far, so we're really excited about that. And we're trying to cover a lot of the swing states, so we're going from Scranton to Oshkosh. We have book signings in D.C. this weekend in Bethesda, Maryland, in Fairfax, Virginia on Saturday and Sunday. Then we're going to be going from Philadelphia, Southern Jersey, all the way up to Chicago, I think in late July. So we're, we're excited about that you know, aspect of it so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, though, we'll, we'll decide to do a second book if this one does well, I think. Okay. So you're excited to go on the book tour. You may be one of the first authors I've spoken to that are actually excited to go on the book tour and are looking forward to the, uh, the writer's cramp <laughs> the uh, the long hours, the travel, and I mean to say it's a wonderful thing from everything I've heard. I've not been mm-hmm, on one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are the uh, final th- uh, things you'd like to say uh, to folks who are listening about your book and about um, the economic situation? I'm not going to ask you to predict the mm-hmm. uh, election or anything like that, which I suspect will be asked of you repeatedly but we, uh, we can do that if you'd like well we can <laughs> i'd be more than glad to give you some some insight on that if you'd like that's up to you if you want to ask the question i mean i really just hope our book inspires people to be informed when they vote okay um and that's i think that's one of the main messages of our book is when you when you pull that lever in the ballot box that's a very serious thing and you should make sure that you're fully informed when you cast that vote and we're hoping you know that our book can help people become informed. I would I would add to that and say, and that's that's Lou's exactly right. But I would I would even add to that and say that your vote can have a very significant impact on your your bottom line, on your net worth. And what we're telling people or suggesting to people is that you know vote for your IRA, vote for your four hundred one k plan, vote for your four hundred three b plan, vote for your son or daughter's five twenty nine plan. Forget all this nonsense that we hear on TV about social stuff, which often is just red herrings disguised to distract us anyway. You know, focus on what is in your best interest. And that's really what the book's about. Vote in for your economic pocketbook, if you will. Okay. Well, Bob Detrick and Lou Goldfarb, I thank you very much for being here today on Writer's Talk. And the website, again, is www.bullsbearsintheballotbox.com, all in word. Okay. Well, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.